All right, so I'm going to be talking about an article that came out a couple days ago in the Daily Beast that I wrote called The Twitter Files Are Too Serious to Be Left to Elon Musk's Pals. Uh, I'll be doing, I think, what I often do and just just kind of talking through the article a little bit and then opening up uh, the lines to calls, although um, if there's a particular part you want to weigh in on and you want to call in kind of while I'm still doing all that, go for it. That's fine. I'm, I'm happy to break it up by taking some calls. Um, but let me, uh, I think, just start out by reading uh, the opening section of the article. So I start out, I say, I'm sorry, but the Twitter files are not a, quote, nothing burger, unquote. The information revealed so far about Twitter's internal deliberations shows that the company's content moderation, uh, love that phrase, uh, decisions were often justified on grounds the decision makers themselves found dubious. The company routinely honored censorship requests from powerful factions, and some political commentators were, quote, shadow banned, unquote, in a way that appears to be inconsistent with Twitter's stated policies at the time. I'll just parenthetically say, I know there's been some pushback against that. If anybody read uh, Eric Levitz's piece in the New Yorker, sorry, not the New Yorker, the New York uh, Magazine uh, Intelligencer, uh, will we'll know that there's an argument that could be made that actually this wasn't really inconsistent with what they said they were doing. I don't really buy that. We can get into it. But here's the point. The examples we've seen at this point have focused on the complaints of conservatives. And so many, you know, I do the cheat code here and say progressives, which is not a word that I'm crazy about, but sometimes it's a useful shorthand for like everybody who's to the left of, uh, of being a conservative or even the sort of left of the, the center right of the Democratic Party. Uh, so I say uh, many of my fellow progressives have reacted by rolling their eyes. But this is a short-sighted response. Twitter is an important part of our uh, digital town square, used by politicians, journalists, and ordinary citizens to disseminate news and make political appeals. Anyone who cares about free speech should care about this information. But Precisely because the Twitter files are important, the way they've been rolled out is problematic. Right-wing billionaire Elon Musk, who recently acquired Twitter, has released the information to a small circle of deeply polarizing media figures. These figures seem to share substantial elements of Musk's culture war agenda, and the way they've released the information to the public often lacks important context and nuance, and analysis, rather. Lacks important context and analysis. There's an easy solution to this problem. Musk could release the original raw information so that journalists across the political spectrum could access it and perform their own analysis. The day he does that, he'll deserve credit for transparency. Until then, not so much. Uh, so it's worth saying here that this, in that opening uh, that I, I, I say, um, that the people he's released it to share substantial elements of Musk's culture war agenda. Uh, and, you know, in the title of the article, obviously, they're referred to as his pals. Um, and I've gotten some pushback about that, especially as regards Taibi. But, um, yeah, I think I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, first, I want to read a little bit more of the article. So when Matt Taibi first started tweeted information about Twitter's decision to censor information about Hunter Biden, it was probably inevitable the leaks would become a culture war football. Taibbi is a polarizing figure, widely perceived by progressives as a former compatriot who now seems entirely too chummy with the other team. Barry Weiss is an even bigger culture war lightning rod than Taibbi. She first made her name attacking the academic freedom of university professors whose views she deemed to be anti-Israel, uh, if you read in the article uh, where I say that, there is a hyperlink to a uh, article from uh, four and a half years ago by uh, Glenn Greenwald, actually, um, who I don't know if he would uh, criticize Weiss on the same grounds today or not. I don't know how they feel about each other now, but uh, in this Intercept article back in 2018, he lays out the case that that's what she was doing in this uh, in this college activism that, that she really was attacking the academic freedom of these Arab scholars for criticizing Israel, trying to ruin these people's careers. Uh, so I'll let people make their own judgments about that. But I remember at the time following this debate about whether that was a fair description and thinking it was a pretty fair description that that's what she was doing. 
Okay, so I say, to be fair, she was a college student then, but as a pundit in her late 30s, she hasn't stopped recklessly accusing supporters of the Palestinian cause of anti-Semitism. Again, I'll just pause and say I actually listened, I don't know, a year or two ago to a episode of Sam Harris's podcast that Barry Weiss went on to talk about uh, this uh, this claim uh, that the um, that uh, her claim that the the left is um, you know is in bed with anti semites or you know or or is infected with anti semitism you know as regards you know commentary on Israel Palestine and it drove me crazy because you know maybe unsurprisingly given who the host was uh, she was never forced to come up with like a really concrete example of this actually happening. She was just kind of generally asserting it as a phenomenon. Uh, so I say somewhat jarringly, given her history of trying to cancel people on the basis of dubious accusations of bigotry, in the last few years, Weiss has emerged as a prominent critic of wokeness and cancel culture. And Weiss was the one who picked up Taibi's baton for the second installment of the, quote, Twitter files, unquote. After Weiss and Taibi traded off installments for a while, a third contributor was brought on. Michael Schellenberger, an anti-woke culture warrior who once wrote a book called, and I promise I'm not making this up, San Francisco. Uh, such a stupid title. All right. So with a crew like that in charge of disseminating the information, it's not surprising that they focused on the cases most likely to outrage conservatives. The shadow banning of MAGA commentators like, uh, you know, my old friend, uh, Charlie Kirk, the outright banning of Donald Trump and the decision to censor the New York Post's article on Hunter Biden. And it's even less surprising that conservatives have celebrated the Twitter files while progressives have dismissed the whole thing as a, quote, nothing burger, unquote. That's how the culture war goes. One side trumpets information seen as embarrassing to their enemies, and the other is primed to see the alleged scandal as overwrought nonsense. It's a familiar script. But it's worth taking a long step back and acknowledging that there are issues at play here about free speech and corporate control of the digital public square far more important than how anyone feels about media figures like Taibbi, Weiss, or Schellenberger. And that's really the main point. I really want to kind of underline and circle that part because, you know, I do, um, you know, I do say some stuff here about uh, these uh, these media figures, obviously. You know, Barry Weiss, I say some pretty harshly critical things, and I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at Schellenberger. Um, I think very few people in my audience are likely to push back against either of those. I think the more controversial part is about Taibbi, and again, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But I like ultimately my take on Matt Taibbi is I don't really give a shit one way or the other about Matt Taibbi. In other words, like, look, I think. Um, I liked his book, Hate Inc. I recommend it all the time. I think it's a really good book, really insightful book of media criticism. Um, I am not crazy about some of his political drift in the last couple of years. If you read, like, he wrote an essay about Howard Zinn that was uh, basically said, well, I don't like Howard Zinn anymore because now this is supposedly the new orthodoxy or whatever, and I think he makes some very shallow and silly criticisms of Zinn. In that essay, he wrote an essay about, uh, these are both on his substack, about uh, Herbert Marcuse, where, you know, which I think drifted into territory that could be, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think could, uh, could be seen as a little bit too congenial to the sort of right-wing narrative about the alleged influence of the Frankfurt School uh, on, um sort of progressive cultural uh, cultural trends in the U.S. in a way I think, you know, I think is a little silly. I think it's I think it's a little bit of a shallow reading. I think R.J. Esco had a good discussion with Taibi where he pushed back against some of this stuff. And I only bring all this stuff up to show that I think that there has been a little bit of a drift in a direction I'm not crazy about with Taibi the last couple of years. But that's not really the main point. Look, it could be that tomorrow Taibi comes out, you know, like writes another book that I like uh, could be that his, his, you know, his interests change tomorrow and, you know, and I'm, I'm more impressed again. I mean, I have to say actually uh, the criticism of Matt Taibbi that I've, I found the most compelling was the one made by Yasha Levine 
uh, Google Yasha Levine plus Matt Taibbi, which was about how Taibbi handled uh, his his cancellation over the uh, the exile, which is the mag you know magazine that he and uh, and Mark Ames you know they wrote a book uh, that was based on it uh, did when they in Russia, which was clearly satire, but people um, you know people reacted. Uh, sort of took screenshots from it in a way that suggested that it was like a confession of, you know, sexual harassment and assault uh, rather than the satirical writing that it clearly was. And uh, Levine makes the case that Taibbi sort of, for the sake of making that scandal go away through his former collaborator, Mark Ames, un- under the bus in kind of a dishonorable way. I have to say that as a criticism of Taibbi as a person, that's the one I found the most compelling. Um, you know, although I'd be interested in Taibbi side of that, of course, but, you know, but, but I mean, on the face of it, that seems like a reasonable criticism politically. I think he's probably a mixed bag. I think that he's probably, you know, in like, he's somebody who's always admired Noam Chomsky. Hate Inc. was, uh, was originally, you know, he originally conceptualized it as a sort of, you know, 30 years later update to Chomsky and Herman's manufacturing consent. But I think he's also got a sort of streak of anti-communist sort of mainstream liberalism in his politics and probably always has, you know, he'll say silly things like, um, you know, he'll never be a socialist because he lived in a socialist society. And he saw what that was like, where, where what he means by that is like Russia in 1990, uh, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and, um, uh, you know, all of which is just to say, tried to locate exactly where Matt Taibbi sits on the political map and, you know, tried to decide whether he goes in the good box or the bad box is just not a super interesting question to me. When I say he seems to share substantial parts of Musk's culture war agenda, you know, that's not calling him a conservative. That's just saying that, you know, if you read any of Taibbi's stuff in the last couple of years or you watch his many appearances on Fox or, you know, sort of chubby conversations with Ben Shapiro, et cetera, it's clear that his focus, this isn't to say all of his positions, but his focus is very strongly on sort of uh, critiquing censorious woke liberals. Uh, and pushing back against the bad things that liberals and Democrats do. Now, I have nothing against pushing back against the bad things that liberals and Democrats do, but given that that's his focus, uh, and that means that he's not really likely to say very much that's critical about Elon Musk right now. Um, or, you know, and I think, or at the very least, Musk could reasonably think that when he designated him as one of the guys to share the Twitter files with, that Taibbi is somebody who's who's likely to focus on the parts that Musk himself wants to focus on. And that's the point. You know, whether Powell's is exactly fair or not, I'm, I don't have a tremendous amount of appetite to, you know, argue about that. I know Taibbi certainly used to be very critical of Musk, like when Taibbi would go on the Michael Brooks show, uh, you know, years ago, obviously. But, um, you know, but whether... Um, but right now, his preoccupations don't really lead him in that direction. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the, pre, that's the point to me. Uh, <laughs> Straubs says Peter Kuklinus, I might be mispronouncing that, came out against Powered Zin for being an idealist rad liberal. I don't think that was the direction of Taipei's criticism. Uh, Silver Harlow says, ah, but then it's Christmas. We're supposed to care about who's naughty and who's nice. I really don't. That's really not the point, right? If you love Matt Taibbi, you hate Matt Taibbi, uh, you are lukewarm about Matt Taibbi. That last one's closest to my position. I think any of those are kind of consistent with the point that I'm making. And I do see that I have a caller, but let me just, um, finish this section and then I'll take the, I'll take Amanda's call. Okay. Here's the point. Um, the decisions of Twitter 1.0 may well have hurt the right much more than the left, although we won't know that for certain until the original information is released. Uh, but this would be a particularly short-sighted reason for the left to dismiss corporate censorship as an unimportant issue. As a matter of principle, the left has historically supported free speech. It makes very little sense for progressives to adopt a narrow libertarian view of freedom whereby only government censorship can count as a problem. As Jacobin staff writer Branko uh, Marchetich puts it, 
Uh, the left has always understood, quote, that repression is just as likely to come from private actors as the state and is just as outrageous when it does, unquote. And as a matter of self-interest, it's self-defeating to ignore the potential for future censorship to target the left. That would have been true even if Twitter had stayed under its old management. The kind of mainstream Democrats most likely to end up as decision makers in a corporation like Twitter are unlikely to be sympathetic to the Bernie Sanders-aligned left. And Twitter 2.0 is run by a man who regularly tweets about what he calls, quote, the woke mind virus, unquote, and his deep hatred of liberals and leftists. He's already shown himself to be, at best, extremely inconsistent in his alleged commitment to uh, free speech. Happy to talk about examples of this, but right now I'm just going to plunge on. And here's the point, given all that, who do you think he's going to censor? Predictably, some conservatives have hyped uh, Taibbi slash Weiss slash Schellenberger revelations up to the point of absurdity. In a tweet with tens of thousands of likes, right-wing commentator Pedro Gonzalez said he wouldn't be happy until former Twitter executives Jack Dorsey and Yoel Roth were in prison, even though no one has actually alleged that either man broke any laws. Now, that's ridiculous, but it doesn't mean it's unimportant that the private corporation that owns our digital commons was routinely rubber-stamping censorship requests from powerful factions and justified its decisions in ways that executives knew could not be justified by the site's official policies. If anything, the fact that no laws were broken is scandalous in itself because it underscores that these oligarch-owned tech platforms are almost totally unregulated, which is something the left should see as a problem. Okay, I'm going to uh, take a break to uh, to take... Um, um, to take uh, to take Amanda's call. So Amanda, what's on your mind? Good evening, Ben. I, I don't mind if you finish reading the article because my question might be answered by the time you get But I don't hear you yet. You can't hear me? Oh, now I do. I heard that. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. Yep. I don't know why you couldn't hear me, but hello. Who knows? Hello. I, I just, I just said, I just, all I said was, was if you'd like to finish reading the article, the question I no, have no, no. to be answered ah, in the rest okay. of the article. Let's do it anyway. Okay. Okay. Because okay. also I'm showing my, I didn't read the article before coming ah. to your show and calling in. So apologies to the, to the writer in you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But what's on your mind? Um, so, so far in the article, you've basically covered who wrote the stuff but you barely touched on what the mm, stuff was mm -hmm. which is the more outrageous part of the story frankly mm -hmm. and i kind of don't give a crap who any of these three people are or whoever mm. else might give them the data mm -hmm. from interviews i've watched with matt taibbi with both russell brand and glenn greenwald and um katie halper mm. and Aaron mate Mm -hmm. All of those, on all of those folks, he ba it sounded to me like he got temporary, like he went to a place where he could get access to the information, he could get the information that he wanted, but he couldn't just like go whenever he wanted, get whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. And so necessarily you have to pick some kind of topic. It's an abomination how many different topics they could have covered probably. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. worries me that when you're focusing, because because really the biggest bigger part of the story is the content that those people put out. I think. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's, all, I, that's my comment. Maybe you cover it later on in the article. Uh, I do to a certain extent, but that's a good that's a good uh, that's a good question. So so let me just kind of briefly address okay. that before Bert before we go on. Uh, so I I think that uh, you're right, of course. Uh, anybody who's given this, you know, or access, temporary access to this information is going to have some kind of focus. And I also agree with you that, that it is um, amazing in itself how many different possible, uh, you know, focuses you, you, could, you could have uh, that, you know, that there, there would be, you know, pretty outrageous information to put out about and and I do I do go on to talk a little bit more about the specific revelations but here's why I think it does matter a, a little bit 
who is granted access and who isn't. Um, be, you know, because even though a lot of what I'm doing about in the article is sort of, you know, the part I just went through and the part I'm about to go through is sort of pushing back against people and say, oh, this is nothing very important. It's what all you're saying is that a website had some mods, you know, this, this is, this is a, this is a nothing burger, whatever that I'm pushing back against that stuff. I also think that uh, the fact that the sort of focus is on the parts of the censorship that are sort of um, that are have to do with the complaint, you know, the complaints of conservatives that so much of it's, it has actually the last couple of installments broadened out a little bit, but the, that so many, much of the initial focus was on first uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story and then the uh, the decision to uh, to ban Donald Trump, which are are very high profile cases, of course. But I mean, like these are also cases that people are very familiar with, et cetera, I think is important in itself. Uh, so there's a there's a point, actually, one of the earlier tweets where uh, Taibbi says uh, that. Uh, there were routinely Twitter was getting an honoring request from both the Biden campaign and the Trump White House in the fall of 2020, but he doesn't actually give any examples of the uh, of the request from from the Trump White House. And uh, and he certainly, you know, and, and certainly, I mean, I, again, I go on to talk about some like some other specific angles I'd be very interested in. But I think that you. I think if the only people who are given access to this information um, or access to, you know, temporary access to this information are people who tend to share the same kind of interests and preoccupations and, you know, focus uh, on like which, which kind of side of the culture war they're interested in pushing back against all that stuff, then the stuff we're going to find out about is going to reflect that. And I'm not even, honestly, I'm, 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 I think that's less a sort of indictment of those people than it is an indictment of the decision to only allow those people uh, to have, uh, to have access to it. Uh, that, you know, I really, you know, I think the ideal thing would actually be just do like a giant, you know, WikiLeaks kind of dump of, um, of the uh, of the original raw information to a big database that any journalist from anywhere across the political spectrum could look at, but even if you weren't going to do that, and you know you might have reasons not to do it, we could certainly get into that. But even if you weren't going to do that, you could at the very least have a spectrum of uh, of journalists who you gave this information, where the spectrum uh, didn't. Um, Uh, sorry, at the very least, you could have a spectrum of journalists who are given access to this information um, where the spectrum included people who had very different preoccupations uh, than um, than Taibbi Weiss and Schellenberger. You know, the, the spectrum included people who uh, who were, you know, maybe very interested in looking at um the sort of content moderation decisions that were being made uh, during the uh, during the Democratic primaries, or uh, that you know that were very interested in looking at the uh, the sort of wrongdoing of the Trump White House and the ways that the uh, the Trump White House might have requested censorship information uh, censorship uh, on Twitter, which we know they did from one of those early Taibbi tweets, but we don't know any specifics. Or the spectrum included people whose focus was on the censorship of Palestinian accounts, you know, requested by Israel, possibly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, we could only speculate, but, uh, but that is the, um, but that, that would, that's, that's why I think it matters a little bit. Right. So in other words, that, so I, I'm doing two things in the article. One is saying, look, people who liberals and leftists who want to say, Oh, this is nothing. There's nothing new here. It's not important, even if it is new. Um, you know, this is, you know, who cares about this Twitter stuff anyway? Say those people are wrong, that actually this information is very significant. But then, two, I think because it's significant, that means it's a problem that the only people who are sort of allowed to go fishing in this pond are people who share these preoccupations and these interests and this kind of alignment. And so that's going to dictate what kind of what 
kind of fish they're going to go fishing on to extend that uh, cheesy metaphor a little bit. So I want to uh, take it back to Amanda for a second and then we'll keep going. Uh, I, I think, I think if you could boil that down into a tweet and tag Elon, that you might get him to distribute the information to some other journalists. And I might observe maybe more of a question to leave you with is, is I'm not sure left and right, is really a helpful definer as much as people who are either for or against the establishment and for or against military industrial complex and the security state. Just a thought. I don't, I don't know. I'm just a thought I'm exploring myself. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it at some point, maybe not even tonight, but. Thank you. I appreciate you giving me a chance to call in and talk to you about this. Can you hear me? Hello? I think Ben's on mute. I am on mute. How'd that happen? Okay. Yep. I could hear you. So I actually, I just wanted to uh, chime in. I, Taibi was doing that call in with David Sirota last week. And, uh-huh. um, and I was the first caller and, you know, I wanted, cause part of the thread was related to one six and they were critics. I think the, the sense I got was the, the criticism was that, there was the pretext of, you know, potential to incite violence. <clears throat> and they were kind of trying to criticize that. At least that was partially, I think, what was going on with that line of sorry, argument. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Uh, the pretense was that what was the potential to incite violence? Uh, I think they said, like, the the um, potential, like, it's for banning Trump. It was for banning the, Trump, right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I gotcha. I'm so I, so yep. I wanted to ask him, you know, I wanted to ask him, well, what do you think of Musk uh, saying, you know, I'm going to ban Kanye for because he incites violence, which I think most people would uh, disagree with that assessment based on what he had tweeted. And he kind of just dodged the question. And so that's where I kind of have a problem with it is – he, I think some of it is just like, I just question whether it's what the motivations are. And I know that like the actual, like you said, like the documents being out there and more transparency is good. But when you have it filtered through someone who has a strong antip- antipathy to a certain political faction, then there's going to be that distrust. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so... Look, I I think that um, like I have a lot of problems with the um, the the Trump ban. I actually think it's a little short sighted for um, people who hate Trump, which is a category I'd certainly put myself in uh, to um, to sort of um, be fine with that because because we like the sort of immediate short term consequences. I think that's actually a worrying precedent. Uh, you, I've written about that before, um, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you that the that uh, the Elon uh, Kanye case is ridiculous. That um, and and it's it's particularly ridiculous in a way that I think becomes a little clear if you look at the history of what Elon said he was going to do with the platform when he took it over. That you know he said many times he was very clear on this that um, the only things that would be disallowed on Twitter would be uh, things that weren't like protected under the first amendment as far like legally. Um, and you can't claim that about that Kanye tweet. I mean, like, in fact, this, you know, there are court cases about whether a swastika counts as incitement to violence and the Supreme court says no. Right. That so, um, so it, it's just not the case. And of course, certainly, similarly, the decision to ban the account uh, that uh, that had um, that would post about the publicly available flight information 
uh, through the FAA for uh, for Elon's private plane. I mean, that's something the courts have, have upheld before is like it's fine for that to be public. So he's certainly not following through on his own previous standard, I think in a particularly absurd way in the private plane case, uh, because uh, he'd actually tweeted, he'd like patted himself on the back. Oh, look at me. Uh, I care about free speech so much. I'm even allowing this this account that tweets out uh, the uh, flight info for my private plane. And then he changed his mind and lightning quick uh, made up a policy for it to violate and then started enforcing that policy like 10 seconds later. Um, and and then apparently also swept up a bunch of stuff that didn't, uh, that didn't actually violate it. Um, but yeah, I, I think on, um, okay. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I think Pierre uh, might've been uh, continuing to have, uh, have, have tech issues. Uh, but in any case, uh, I do want to go back before I, before I finish up the article to talk about Amanda's last point. And, and I would just say, look, I understand the, the sentiment she's expressing. That's like, oh, left, right, doesn't really matter. It's sort of like, do you like the military industrial complex and, and certain kinds of powers that be, or do you not like them? Um, I, I really disagree, right? I think that what you think about um, the distribution of material resources. Um, do you think, yeah, I mean, look, not just because like that stuff that matters very profoundly to, to me, do people have radically different life outcomes because of where they're born in the class structure or where, um, or whether they have, you know, the right skill set to, to rise through it. Um, whether people have healthcare or housing, education, uh, you know, whether people have to, some people get to spend all day giving orders and some people have to spend all day taking orders because of their position in the class structure. I mean, these things matter to me a lot. Uh, and, and that's a lot of what kind of, you know, gets me out of bed uh, and gets me right in and all that stuff is, is my anger about those things. But, um, but I'd also just say I, I'm very suspicious that right-wing figures who are allegedly, you know, hostile to the military industrial complex, et cetera, really are when you look very closely. I mean, Elon Musk, for example, sometimes postures as an enemy of the powers that be, but I mean, the man is up to his eyeballs in uh, military industrial complex contracts. Um, he, you know, I mean, he sold the Pentagon, you know, the, the Telestar links uh, for, uh, for the war in Ukraine. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got gazillions and, you know, NASA contracts, spy satellite contracts, et cetera. If you look at people like Josh Howley, who often get points from the sort of, um, you know, from contrary journalist types as a, it's like some kind of principled right-wing isolationist, he's actually a huge hawk about tensions between the U.S. and China. And I think there are reasons for this, because I think these people are ultimately representatives of the political interests of, you know, a certain segment of the economic ruling class. And I don't think real consistent opposition to the military industrial complex would be in its interests. So obviously I'm just kind of making assertions here. This is a much bigger argument and I doubt I've convinced Amanda or anybody else who agrees with her who's in the audience right now and kind of saying all that for 45 seconds. But just for the record, that would be my position. Okay, I want to go back to the article. So... Uh, Next section is called Free Speech in the Left. Starts out like this. Progressive commentator Eric Levitz, um, who I, I like, I should say parenthetically, I disagree with him about this, but I like him, has argued that uh, nothing particularly outrageous is involved in the Twitter file, was revealed in the Twitter files. On Barry Weiss's revelation that Charlie Kirk was shadow banned despite the company having previously denied they do such things, Levitz claims there's no evidence of any disconnect between Twitter's behavior and how the company previously described its practices. After all, when Twitter executives denied that they engaged in shadow banning, they defined the term in a way that would not apply to Kirk's situation. Kirk was placed on a uh, do not amplify list. And on Twitter's decision to censor uh, New York Post art the New York Post article on Hunter Biden's laptop, Levitz argues that nothing in the information revealed by Taibbi shows that Quote, the decision was motivated by anything beyond concern that Twitter would find itself complicit in promulgating hacked materials, unquote. Neither of these defenses are particularly convincing. When Twitter denied 
the shadow banning rumor, it defines shadow banning as deliberately making someone's content undiscoverable to any, everyone except the person who posted it, unbeknownst to the original poster, unquote. Levitz is right that in this sense, Twitter doesn't shadow ban, but Twitter was being slippery, and I'd say extremely evasive, in denying that it's shadow ban, while defining shadow banning as the most extreme version of what someone could mean by that term. In the overwhelming majority of cases, people who think their accounts have been shadow banned know perfectly well their tweets are discoverable by others. They tweet, I think I've been shadow banned. People like and reply to those tweets. The original poster interacts with those replies and so on. What people are concerned with in these instances is not that Twitter has intentionally made their tweets completely undiscoverable to anyone else without informing them, but rather that Twitter has intentionally limited the reach of their tweets without informing them. It's also true that Twitter openly said at the time that, quote, limited visibility, unquote, was one of its enforcement tools. But the only cases in which it had ever admitted to doing so were narrow and uncontroversial cases, like limiting tweets by users who tried to manipulate the algorithm by using unrelated hashtags, shadow banning the accounts of political commentators who pretty much never tweet anything but political commentary, is pretty clearly not the kind of thing Twitter was open about doing. Uh, and I think I say this later in the article, but it's, it's maybe worth pausing for a second to say, look, I don't, in Charlie Kirk's case, yeah, whatever, dude has like millions of Twitter followers. He's obviously not hurt that much by it. But I'm much more concerned about the fact that if they were doing this to him, who were they doing it to that might be like a small a genuinely anti-establishment account that doesn't have millions of followers. So somebody granted access, you know, for a short amount of time to files to do a quick search uh, is not going to see, uh, you know, say, oh, they were shadow batting this person because the name wouldn't even mean anything to them. That's why I think that matters. Anyway, I say in Levitz's take on Twitter censoring the New York Post is even less convincing. He rightly points out that the ban was very short-lived. After a day of immense backlash, the company backed down. But however short-lived, the draconian measures Twitter imposed to stop people from spreading the article were jaw-dropping. As Taibbi notes, quote, White House spokeswoman Kylie uh, McKinney was locked out of her account for tweeting about the story, unquote. And Twitter was trying so hard to clamp down that users were briefly stopped from even DMing each other the article. If Twitter had done that in 2016 to stop the spread of news coverage about Trump's grab them by the pussy access Hollywood tape, liberals and leftists wouldn't and shouldn't think the company quickly backing down the face of backlash made it an unimportant incident. And there might not have been enough backlash to matter if we were talking about a story spread not by the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post, but by a small independent outlet. Was the decision motivated by Twitter executives' desire to avoid being, quote, complicit in promulgating hack materials, unquote, rather than a desire to influence the election? Maybe so. But so what? If Twitter had existed in 1971, the same rationale could have been used to suppress the Pentagon Papers. Journalists are allowed to publish materials leaked to them by people who illegally obtain them. A ban on that is a ban on investigative journalism. Levitz points out it's not illegal or even particularly unusual for politicians or even government officials to request that media organizations not publish news stories. That's true. Uh, they'll often cite national security, etc. But from a left perspective, suspicious of corporate and governmental wrongdoing and the journalists who enable it, that's a bad thing. A news organization that routinely accedes to such requests is doing something wrong and deserves to be exposed and embarrassed. And a neutral platform that does so is much worse. Here's an analogy for that. Imagine that hardcore libertarians implemented their agenda. The U.S. Postal Service is privatized. One of the biggest private mail carriers starts refusing to carry magazines that have printed, quote, possibly hacked, unquote, materials embarrassing to powerful actors. See the problem? Okay. Um, last section is entitled, What Else is in There? I'll just read that off, and then anybody else wants to call in, we can probably take one or two more calls before 
Um, I'm actually meeting up a friend, go, go get some pizza after this. So, uh, so, so don't want to stay out for too long, but happy to stay on for another call or two after. So in the first installment of the files, Matt Taibbi reveals that during the 2020 election censorship requests, quote, from both the Biden campaign and the Trump White House were received and honored, unquote. But Taibbi provides no examples of requests from the Trump team. He just assures us in passing that the, quote, assessment, unquote, of, quote, current and former, unquote, high-level executives is that Twitter's censorship targeted the right in a lopsided way. Now, that may well be true. In the pre-Musk era of Twitter, decision-makers of the company were far more likely to be Democrats than Republicans. But it's maddening that we have to take Trump's word for it. And the fact that we're, uh, sorry, the fact that, we, and it's maddening that we have to take Taibbi's word for it. And the fact that we're only being shown tiny shreds of information only reinforces the instinct of anyone who doesn't share Musk's agenda to dismiss the revelations. Why exactly was Kirk's count limited? Were there small left-wing accounts who didn't start out with millions of followers like Charlie Kirk, who received the same treatment? If Democrats and Republicans uh, both requested censorship for partisan reasons, what other corporate or governmental actors requested it for other reasons? How about pro-Palestinian accounts? More generally, we know that it's in Twitter's we know what's in Twitter's internal documents that confirms the narrative championed uh, by Musk and the three people he shared his information with, but we have no idea what else is in there and how it might complicate that narrative. For the sake of real transparency, Musk could do a WikiLeaks-style dump of all these internal emails and related documents, perhaps with a few clearly indicated redactions of particularly sensitive information that any journalist or interested citizen could access. Failing that, he could at least pick several journalists hailing from different political factions to receive the documents and do their own analysis. Um, <laughs> my nominee from uh, from my corner of the political spectrum, by the way, would be uh, Bronco Marchetich. I think that would be great. Uh, ideally, this group would include people with a history of criticizing Elon Musk. Um, a recent history of criticizing Elon Musk, I should say. Taibbi has a history of criticizing him, but that was years ago when Taibbi positioned himself very differently. And again, without commenting one way or the other about Taibbi's political position, which I don't really care very much about, I will just say that his interests and focus were very different back then. That would give Musk's leaks real credibility. Instead, he's entrusted them to three pundits shared his own agenda. How are corporate overlords manage our digital public square as an issue of real public interests. And for exactly that reason, it's too important to be left in the hands of Musk and his three fans. All right. Uh, with that, I uh, am going to take uh, Scott's question and then we'll probably wrap up for tonight. All right, Scott, what's on your mind? Hey Ben, thanks for taking my call. Um, I I would still call myself a fan of Taibi. I'm disappointed mm -hmm. with some of what he's he's put out there. I think you're correct in that his focus has is more of my problem with him than mm -hmm. his politics might be. Mm -hmm. um, but I will give credit to Barry Weiss, who essentially came out with a statement that pissed. Elon off that said, you know, the old regime practiced <laughs> bad methods as well as the new regime. And Elon obviously did not like being compared to, to, uh, to the previous one. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw that. Um, and yeah, I will, you know, I mean, this is, look, uh, Weiss is definitely much further than Taibbi is from my politics, but, um, but I will give her credit where credit's due for, for that. In fact, she did, even in one of the follow-ups to that tweet, um, like, yeah, I liked the fact that she just, she, she was just like, yeah, I didn't buy it. It's a, it's a private company that can do what they want excuse before. I'm not going to buy it now. Uh, suspending those journalists was wrong. And I even particularly like that in one of the follow-up tweets, she, she, she raised the issue of whether it's bad for like, 
decision makers in a private company to have this much effect on sort of news dissemination and political discourse, which um, which made me really interested. It's like, okay, is Barry Weiss in favor of uh, of nationalizing Twitter now? Because if so, <laughs> man, well, welcome aboard, Comrade Barry. Right. Um, I assume you, I I don't think you were there, but I assume you heard about the Twitter space fiasco uh yeah i i know in a very general sense but but you, yeah. you you probably know more specifically than i do i i think i caught about half of it i don't know how much was there between i i was there when elon showed up uh i was there for quite a while beforehand but it's hard to get a full archive of the thing because nobody thought it would take down the whole Twitter space architecture in order to uh, to stop it. Yeah, they, he actually eliminated the feature after it, which is which is like really just. Um, it, it was I, crazy mid midstream. It 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 the people thought it crashed, but yeah, it got totally taken down. Which which is I have to say like the particularly crazy thing about this that like Musk comes in. Uh, by the way, I see Akintrer in the in the chat says, look. Um, the Taibi had a great story fall into his lap. He can't control out of who gave it to him, and he won't be the fool not to run with it. I don't disagree with that. I don't have a problem with Taibi running the story. I just have a problem with the fact that it wasn't given to a wider range of people, or preferably, again, just do it WikiLeaks style, but just put it on a database that any journalist can search. But yeah, uh, I was going to say, Scott, to to your point, uh, like Musk came in with all these pretenses that he, he wanted to be this like really principled free speech guy. And then honestly, the Twitter 2.0, the Musk version, like has been more sort of blatantly unprincipled about this stuff than, uh, than Twitter 1.0 was in right. some ways. Uh, yeah, they, like, they marked, they marked the tweets that got the journalists banned. And uh, the one that got Bender banned was just the, laughing crying emoji yeah seriously that, like that elon uses yeah it's so amazing right and in yeah. um and like he's just really made it clear over and over again that it's just like look this is just his personal sandbox and whatever whim strikes him at any given moment he'll do so like uh i talked about this when bronco marchstich was on but like one of my f favorite examples of this is uh, when people are raising the issue about reinstating Alex Jones, which, you know, whatever. I mean, like, I don't e I even think it's possible that a, a more reasonable process uh, for, uh, for deciding these things, one that had lots of due process rights and very clearly defined rules and appeals and all that stuff. You know, look, it, it might still have, it might still have booted Jones because, for about the same reasons that he got soaked in civil court um, that, you know, you really can't just, you know, just, just go around making crazy defamatory uh, accusations against private individuals. But so I'm not even that like fussed one way or the other about whether or not Jones is reinstated. But what really hit me about it was Musk's response was no, because and he started talking about his experience of like his kid who died and he quoted the Bible about suffer not those who will harm the little children or something. That's not quite the quote, but it was something like that. And it's like, oh, so you're just saying that this is the stuff you personally find troubling and offensive. So, so like that's, that's the line, right? That like, or like there's the same thing with the, the Kanye thing that it's like, well, uh, the that swastika tweet or whatever it's like okay this is just too much for me right it just couldn't be clearer that there's no principle there's no process it's just it's just like one very temperamental and thin-skinned guy making it up as he goes along absolutely yeah it, it's it, i mean this is it's very clear that he's targeting who he wants to target who he personally is is has a problem with um uh, I'll get to my question because in case you have time to take Matthew's call, um, yep. I guess what, what is the line between moderation and censorship? Because I think that there mm -hmm. is, um, arguments to be made about moderation 
um, you know, they're, they're, um, that you can, you can make if, if, um, if you are willing, but, um, but there are things like the lives of Sniff TikTok account that, that mm -hmm. are promoting, you know, the buzzword is stochastic terrorism that goes around, um, that have these, these, um, you know, megaphones to really promote dangerous and harmful, uh, Mm -hmm. ideas and, and statements. And, and so I was, at, I was curious about your, your take philosophically, I guess, about where that sure. line is, if there is a if there is a defined line or if it's kind of nebulous. Yeah. Um, so I think it is going to be a little bit nebulous. I don't, I don't think there's going to be like an amazing answer here that like would provide totally clear guidance in all cases. Um, but I, I think the real question is not, you know, cause, cause when people start talking about this, they always like jump immediately to, oh, um, so I guess you want there to be no rules at all. It's just going to be a sea of, you know, of, uh, of dick pics and racial slurs and, uh, and it'll collapse two days later because, cause nobody's going to want to do this sort of if it's, you know, eight chat or whatever, uh, but but I don't think that was ever a possibility. I think that sure there are going to be some rules, uh, but look, I think a good analogy would be, or at least maybe a sort of started analogy for thinking about this would be like think about like public comment at a city council meeting. It's not like you could just go up to the microphone and start like you know, screaming the N word at the top of your lungs <laughs> and like somebody, like if, if you do, if you do that, right. Somebody, I think will will escort you away and the city is not going to worry very much that they're going to get sued for that. Like they'll be okay. Um, but if, if they were going to start like uh, saying like, Oh, only people with such and such opinions were allowed to, to do the public comment at the, at the meeting, like then they'd actually have like a first amendment lawsuit on their hands and and quite rightly so so like there are going to be there are going to be some rules uh you know you're, you're not just going to be able to um uh, sort of um uh, you know dump you know i don't know nigerian print scam uh links you know onto uh onto twitter all day or whatever but the question is are those going to be relatively clearly defined rules or are they going to be are they going to be like vague and capricious ones that can mean whatever somebody at Twitter wants them to mean. Are those going to be rules that um, that try to err on the side of protecting some pretty robust free speech norms, um, like, you know, content neutrality, or are they going to be rules that are more censorious, that are more, um, that, uh, that, like, really put Twitter in the business of trying to decide, like being the arbiter of what's true and what's false, what counts as misinformation or, you know, the sort of the, the judgment of some, of some corporate censor of, of like what, what ideas could be dangerous or whatever, or are they going to be more, uh, you know, lax rules that, that sort of err a little bit more on the side of protecting, um, protected free speech. And and I think there are good reasons, both sort of in principle and pragmatically, that we should want there to be, um, you know, clear rules that um, that that do that do err on the less censorious uh, side. You know, not because it's not really true that there there are um, going to be cases where you know those those sorts of laxer rules let in stuff that really might have bad consequences. I think there are, I think you have to own that if you're going to take this position, but because, um, but because we don't, well, you know, for a few reasons, one of which that I, I wish there was more emphasis on when people just talked about this stuff and left the online spaces is that like, look, who decides, like, do we, do we really want to empower, um, do we really want to empower people who ultimately work for this, this, you know, very profitable or not very profitable, whatever, but very, uh, you know, very expensive, at least corporation, um, you know, who are ultimately responsible to Elon Musk, 
Uh, and, and if Elon didn't own the company, would be ultimately responsible to some other rich people. Do we want to empower them to decide what's dangerous or what isn't dangerous? Do we want to empower them to decide, you know, what, what, you know, what they think is true and what they think isn't, et cetera? Uh, I don't think so. And I also, you know, and, and even if it were publicly owned, I don't, I wouldn't particularly want to empower you know, the government to decide those things either, although that'd be better. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the reasons for it to be publicly owned, one of the reasons that, you know, I actually do take that position that, you know, Barry Weiss sort of, sort of came up to the ledge of, of advocating in that tweet is that I, I think it would be a good thing that, you know, whether it was Congress or whether it was some kind of independent agency that, that ran it, I actually think it would be a great thing if, whoever was crafting the moderation policies had to worry about whether these policies would survive first amendment challenges in the courts. Uh, like, I don't know exactly what they would come up with, but I, I, I would be much more comfortable with them having to worry about that than them being able to accurately say, yeah, whatever, it's a private company. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. Well, the, I can't really articulate my point. But like um, something awful, I don't know if you're familiar with, but it was a big forum back Vaguely, in the uh, 2000s. And their policy on banning is we will ban you for whatever we want. We, right. we will ban you if we're having a bad day. But they were very clear about that, that, that uh, they don't care about if you're going to complain. Right. And it seems like if there was more competition and more variety in services that people um, could make choices about which communities that they want to participate in. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's competitors in parlor and truth social and things where, you know, the certain segments have, have migrated to, but don't seem to uh, have the popularity that Twitter does. But um yeah, so I think that whole sort of a tricky subject. Yeah, it is. I think that I think that I think there's a interesting conversation to be had about the what's called the was it like the Fediverse, right? Which is which is all the uh, the decentralized <laughs> yeah. uh, social media servers. Uh, whether that ever could overtake Twitter, whether it'd be a good thing if it did, uh, whether that's a good model, uh, why it doesn't seem to be overtaking Twitter anytime soon, whatever. Uh, that's, I think maybe a, uh, a, a, since it would be a long discussion itself, maybe a discussion the other day, but thank you for the call. Uh, let me, um, let's, let's take, uh, I do want to get off in the next like three to three to four minutes. Uh, but, uh, but, but Matthew has been waiting patiently. So let's take Matthew's call. Well, I don't want to keep a man from his pizza, so I'll try to keep <laughs> this as sure as possible. I guess I, I, sort of reverting back to Amanda's point and sort of the idea that this is maybe the perfect being the enemy of the good. Like yeah. I could think of far worse hands that Musk could have put the information into, though I do share uh, your concern that maybe we're not seeing the entirety of this information, that there's other journalists that you would like to have their eyes and lens, political lens on this information to disseminate it to us in a much more even uh, fashion. Um, but at the same time, I think it is fascinating. I think it's this quote unquote public square we have that Elon's gifting us <laughs> is uh, uh, in its previous iteration was in contact with very powerful national security agencies. That's concerning to me. So totally. if it's coming from Weiss or, or Taibi, it's, I, I, I can't, be too concerned about it because I'm like, my eyebrows are going up just based on that information that our government is talking to this entity and, and determining what we can learn from it, um, which is deeply concerning on, especially for, I mean, I, I'm not of the left, yeah. but, but as for someone who's, you know, left curious and at least, you know, has my ear to the ground in that arena, I, I, you guys seem to be constantly on the outside looking in for the, on these power structures. This doesn't seem to shift much for you. It seems like, you know, it's, it, you're going to continue have to fight this central battle here. And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it helps you in the long run or maybe it's just the status quo, but I don't know. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, yeah. I mean, I agree. 
Okay, so I want to start at the end of the question saying, yes, uh, that is alarming. Um, and I, I think, uh, I mean, look, in a certain sense, we knew that, that there was government pressure in, of a different kind that was part of the picture because, I mean, there have been like congressional hearings since, I don't know, end of 2016, beginning of 2017, yeah, saying yep, that they, they need to, uh, they need to, to, to censor more. Uh, which, which I found alarming at the time, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but I think that, I think that this new information that like the FBI, um, uh, was like actually had people who were like on the Twitter beat, uh, and they would, and they would send, uh, and they would send Twitter executives like, oh, you should take a look at this account or whatever. No, that's, that's creepy. That's disturbing. I don't like it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, although again, as with so much of this stuff, man, I really want to know more details about uh, about this than uh, that we've gotten so far. But like the thing itself is bad, uh, and it's. Do you hope there? Do you hope that there is more? Like to come? I mean, obviously, there's going to be more. I mean, there's been so much. Sure. Uh, Taibi was mentioning, uh, <laughs> it's shocking here, but he was talking to Shapiro, which I was listening to, and he was talking about that uh, how many how much how much how many files they had and that he was in favor of a wiki leak style um tactic to this now granted he's clearly not maybe he's not in a position to do that but he's clearly uh yeah, he's wanting well, to get this out there so yeah it's good i hope so um and i'm, I'm glad to hear that that he i'm glad to hear that he does uh he does advocate that i mean i think that the uh but yeah I mean, and, and that's the sort of primary point of the articles is to is to argue that that's that's what we that that that's what the best outcome here would be if yeah. if it did, uh, if it was just just uh, just released in uh, in that way, but um, but yeah, I, look, I think it's bad that the uh, the FBI was uh, was was doing this. Um, I know the argument that's like, well, technically, if they're not forcing them to, if they're just asking, it doesn't it doesn't violate the First Amendment. But you know, I, I think there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of space in between uh, clearly illegal uh, and and alarming, right? I think something could be alarming yeah. if it's not quite illegal, uh, and um, and you know, and, and I think that the the sort of Eric Levitt's point that I mentioned in the article where he says, well, look. Uh, like intelligence agencies will ask newspapers not to run things because they say there's a, um, you know, could be national security consequences or whatever all the time. And that's not illegal. It's like, okay, one, that's not great either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, no, uh, no. You know, um, like, I mean, the sort of most notorious example I could think off the top of my head is the Bush administration successfully getting the New York Times to hold off for a year on their story about the CIA black sites uh, where people are being tortured in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, and, and I think, again, I think any news organization that routinely bows to that pressure is doing something wrong and deserves to be exposed for that. Uh, so that's one. Agreed. Uh, but the other point is that I think it's actually much worse in this case because Twitter's not a news organization. It doesn't have, it's not making editorial decisions, or at least it's not supposed to. Um, that's that's not the kind of that's not the kind of entity that it's supposed to be. Well, they certainly uh, shouldn't be edited by the FBI. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's supposed to be a, a neutral platform. And again, if if we had private mail carriers that were just you know sort of picking and choosing what they were going to uh, allow through the mail based on what you know somebody from the FBI whispered in their ears, I think that would be. Um, you know, I think that you know, I think that would be alarming. So, uh, yes, you know, so yeah, I, I think uh, I mean just just to real quickly uh, go from um, uh, go uh, to um, go to the um, the beginning of your call. I think. Look, is uh, is this um, you know, I'm making the perfect the enemy of the good. If the question is, am I? would I rather that this information wasn't out there at all versus having it be out there in this forum? I'm with you. I, I, I'd rather have it be out there in this forum than not at all. Um, but if the question is, is this the best way to do it? Is this like, uh, is, is there a legitimate criticism of the fact that it's only, you know, these people who share these certain kinds of preoccupations and agenda 
who who are being given the information right now. Yeah, I, I do think that's a I do think that's a problem. I do think there's some legitimate criticism there. But uh, we are uh, pretty over time. Well, thank and you I for taking my call, Ben. Enjoy your pizza tonight. And yes, you've you've raised my eyebrows as far as that criticism goes. So the article seems well written. Thank you for taking my call. All right, appreciate that, Matthew. Uh, let's just lightning around this, uh, if at all possible. Uh, so, Jenny, real quick, what's up? Uh, thanks for your article. I thought it was really fair. And uh, I'm someone who was deplatformed from Twitter. They didn't even bother to tell me why. So I'm watching the story pretty closely because I'd like to get my Twitter back. I was, you know, 120,000 tweets over 10 years. It was my favorite platform. So I'm kind of sad that I've been cut out of the conversations there for the last couple of months. But um, I appreciate just the overall feel of what's happening. I don't think there was any good way to do it. And the, these drops from various people. Uh, may feel bad, but I think at the end of the day, we'll all look back and feel like this was a good way to do it, to just kind of string people along, let them see. And and I'm hearing more and more just over the last 24 hours about human trafficking and child trafficking and child pornography. And Elon, in an interview recently said he wasn't even aware of how much of this sort of activity was happening on Twitter. And so I'm watching that side of it pretty closely because that's what I write about on my Substack. All right. I appreciate the call, Jenny. Um, again, just, just kind of continuing to lightning around this. Matthew? Oh, no, I lost Matthew. Okay. Um, so uh, what I suspect will be the final call of the evening, Jay Mile. Hey. Um, oh, I was just going to close with a quick joke that, you know, all websites are edited. Otherwise, it would be nothing but pornography. Fair enough. All right. Uh, well, with Thanks that, show. On, uh, on that note, um, I really am going to, um, I really am going to wrap it up uh, for uh, for today uh, because I am hungry. Uh, and um and i am um i am going to um yeah i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna wrap it up but really good calls today uh i'm probably gonna be doing another one of these mid afternoon tomorrow where i am which is well mexico but uh west coast time so uh kind of uh, mid-afternoon here is like early evening if you are on the East Coast. And with that, I am going to wrap for tonight. 